I could not be more excited to introduce to you Quinn Cowan. Thank you, Stefano, for your kind introduction and for the invitation to come and to share this evening. Uh, it's been a pleasure to gather just briefly out in the foyer and be introduced to some of you, uh, as well as meet some friendly faces that maybe has been some time since we have uh, had the occasion to be with each other. So uh, pleasure to be with you this evening. But I'd like to begin with uh, just asking the question by a show of hands, how many people here this evening have had some relationship, friend or family, or know of an individual who uh, in their personal life has walked away from the Catholic Church? Um, thank you, you and lower your hands. So, not, sadly, uh, not a surprising display. Um, and what I would like to speak about this evening, um, shorthand, is the topic of evangelization. But I'd like to segue into that gradually. And so the place that I'd like to begin is just sharing a little bit about Myself, um, Stefano gave a couple details in the brief bio uh, to introduce myself, uh, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper. And so I am a native of this, uh, the Diocese of Nashville, and I grew up uh, cradle Catholic. I spent some time going to Overbrook School. Uh, I went to St. Henry uh, as uh, an elementary and middle schooler. I was a, a parishioner along with my family at St. Henry uh, Church in West Nashville. And so I would consider myself to be uh, a recipient of what I refer to as the cookie cutter Catholic upbringing, uh, where I, I went through certain routines. I went to Catholic schools. I went to, um, I went to Mass on Sunday with my family. In fact, we had our seat, it was the second row on the right side at the 11 a.m. Sunday Mass. If you were there, um, you were getting the, the stink eye from everyone else who knew that you were in the Cowan's pew uh, until we showed up and, and had to give you the cold shoulder as a result of having occupied our seat. So uh, yeah, this, this was my upbringing. And, and particularly, uh, there are a number of, of sins that are deeply rooted uh, in myself as a result of just my family and my upbringing. One of them particularly is pride. I come from a very prideful family uh, where every dinner table conversation would quickly devolve into an argument and needing to be, to be right, to be the best, appear to be the best in any given situation. Um, and just from bad friendships, from certain family, family dynamics uh, and negative habits that were cultivated in that environment, uh, it led to me just developing particular vices that became particularly notable and prominent and would alter and determine certain trajectories that I would find myself on, some of which were things like, uh, from this pride, the desire, uh, again, to appear to be the best in all situations, so the inclination towards things like compulsive lying, um, particularly uh, as I as I matured, uh, matured maybe is not the right word when I'm referring to myself in sixth grade. Um, but as I as I continued to grow in adolescence through some unhealthy friendships, exposure to behaviors like pornography, um, which 
as I grew and graduated from my, my experience in Catholic school, I went on to uh, graduate high school from uh, Hume Fogg Academic Magnet School, public school downtown. But um, that shift towards uh, a public school education was kind of a, a one more step back from the seriousness with which I observed my faith. And so um, in that environment, things like uh, pornography addiction became daily uh, daily vices that I would turn to, un yeah, unchastity, greed, all these different vices that particularly um, were implanting themselves within myself so that by the time that I graduated from high school uh, and I went to the University of Tennessee, I was essentially primed and ready, I would say, to run headlong into innumerable pitfalls uh, that are customary, sadly, uh, in the college experience, such as in my experience, things like underage drinking, party culture, uh, hookup culture, promiscuous sexual encounters um, in that environment, as well as just other things that maybe are a little less obvious but are equally as prominent, things like uh, stemming from that pride and competition with one another, things like career anxiety um, and so forth. And so many of these things culminated in me ceasing to practice my faith in college and so I kind of want to put a pause there just on my personal sharing of my own experience and return to sort of the, the central thread of what I'd like to speak about, and that is evangelization. And as Stefano shared, I work with an organization. Uh, I'm blessed to work with an organization known as the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, commonly known uh, shorthand as FOCUS. Uh, and so as I share about evangelization, um, I would like to just kind of make you aware that, of course, it'll be emphasized through the lens uh, of my experience working with college students, particularly. So um, I shared about, very briefly, some of the vices and struggles and pitfalls that I found myself wallowing in uh, as a result of the exposure and the habits that I had cultivated growing up. And I wish, sadly, uh, I cannot, but I wish that I could say that I was alone. So just to share with you, and these may not surprise you, perhaps they may shock you, um, I'm, I'm not sure, but today, on the college campus in the United States, over 50% of college students now come from single parent and broken homes, which contribute to other things like 80%, over 80% of college students engaging in premarital sexual activity, which contributes to other things like over 50% of the abortions in the United States are procured by college age women. And in addition to this, this fuels other realities like when college students are polled, 43% in the United States actively uh, respond that they feel depressed, which contributes to things like suicide is actually the second leading cause of death among college students in the United States, which culminates ultimately all of these vices and habits and statistics. Ultimately, the, the culmination and result of those realities is that it steers people away from their faith. And so in the United States, over 85% of Catholics who go to college cease practicing their faith during that time. So um, this is a harsh reality, but how do we 
address this need? How do we evangelize in this tumultuous and hostile culture to our faith? And as I shared, I would like to speak about evangelization, and I'm going to frame it particularly through the approach that we, in our work with FOCUS, take to accomplishing this task. And so, particularly, there are, well, so there, there are a lot of methods, um, if you will, of evangelization that are sort of floating in the Catholic cosmos. Um, some of them are well-founded um, in things like the gospel, the teachings of the magisterium, in the traditions of the church, um, some perhaps less so. But I would like to put to you, um, or I would like to posit to you that the method that we have adopted within our work in focus of approaching evangelization is rooted in all three of these. And it's very simple and can be applied and ought to be applied to any person or any group of people, any time in history, anywhere. And so it comes down to, in our work, three particular core tenets that we seek to abide by in our work of evangelization. And I'll share them with you briefly, and then I'll go back and, and extrapolate a little bit. But the first one is divine intimacy. The second is authentic friendships. And the third is what we call spiritual multiplication. So these may sound somewhat intuitive. They may seem perhaps just like more Catholic buzzwords. Um, but to begin with divine intimacy, despite perhaps the intuitiveness to that term, the reality remains that we are unable to give what we do not first possess. The reality that a fire most easily spreads from an existing, a pre-existing fire. And so this immediately places as a chief priority to effective evangelization our own intimacy with our Lord. And of course, I'm fortunate to be here speaking to the lay Dominicans this evening, and so I know that this is something that you are not uh, perhaps foreign to, but cultivating habits such as daily prayer, daily participation and reception of the sacraments, ongoing formation, apostolically, humanly, spiritually, intellectually, and generally a holistic conformity of our life to the life of Christ. And so this becomes the foundation upon which the remainder of the work of evangelization can be built, our own intimate life with Christ. And so moving to this second tenet uh, of authentic friendship, what I would like to do is just turn back to my own uh, experience a little bit. And where I left off with you just a moment ago was after I had entered into the college experience and run headlong into these countless pitfalls that had culminated in my own walking away from the faith. For whatever reason, perhaps it was uh, a dose of Catholic guilt planted from my childhood, there was a particular occasion on a Sunday where I found myself in attendance at Mass at the Catholic Student Center at the University of Tennessee, St. John the 23rd Catholic Student Center. And it was my junior year of college, and after Mass, in the lobby, there were two particular individuals uh, that I encountered. They were male missionaries 
who worked with Focus. Their names were Jake and Dominic. And they did everything that a, a missionary you would imagine would do. They invited me to their Bible study. They encouraged me to get involved. Uh, but more than anything, what began as the first pebbles to start an avalanche was the intentionality with which they sought to pursue friendship with me. Particularly of the two of them, Jake was the one that I became profoundly close to. And it was not the idea of Bible study, certainly at this point that I was in in my faith, that attracted me to undergo the process of reconversion. Rather, um, it was the intentionality with which he sought me. And before I even continue, I would like to perhaps pose a question to you. Maybe a show of hands is not necessary. But I would invite you to consider for a moment the number of relationships that you have in your life where those relationships are of such a quality and depth that they, if they were to challenge you on some perhaps fundamental belief that you hold, that you would have the humility, docility, and receptivity to actually accept that admonition, consider it, and even maybe change your outlook or your approach to the way that you live. Generally, um, as you consider that question, generally I share with people that that number can be counted typically on one hand. If you're incredibly fortunate, maybe on two. Likely no more than that. And the reason is because the most intimate relationships in our life oftentimes are the most powerful vehicles for the deepest transformations. So when we consider maybe who would be those one handful of individuals in our lives that have this profound level of influence on us, oftentimes they may be somebody like a spouse, a best friend, a parent, maybe child, and so forth. And so these relationships are incredibly deep, and as a result of that, they take an incredible amount of effort to cultivate. And so friendship then, I would posit to you, is one of the chief vehicles by which successful evangelization occurs. So returning to my friendship, which began to develop with these two men, Jake and Dominic, again, particularly Jake, I will highlight, um, it was not, uh, yes, Jake's invitation to spiritual functions, but rather uh, Jake, if you, if you knew him, uh, you would understand that Jake was sort of the pinnacle of what we would call a man's man. He was somebody that loved to hunt, to fish, to hike, to camp, he drove a pickup truck just like, you know, mass marketing masculinity would have you believe he ought to look like. Um, and so Jake, Jake checked all these boxes, but as I continue to grow in friendship and intimacy with Jake, what profoundly influenced and particularly, I think, piqued my interest about him was that despite having all of these checkbook, textbook, checkbox, textbook qualities to his masculinity. He was a man of profound joy and intimacy, uh, profound joy and radiated an intimacy with Christ in prayer. 
He was steeped in the sacraments. He went to daily mass. He prayed a daily holy hour. He invited me to join these with him. And by being in friendship with Jake, I could not help but in my life gradually grow nearer and nearer to life with Christ. And so it began uh, as this introduction in the narthex of the Catholic Student Center, but it was through that vehicle of friendship that gradually Christ began to chisel away at my stony heart and ultimately uh, make profound headway in cracking it open. And so particularly one thing I would like to draw uh, into this consideration of friendship as a powerful vehicle of transformation and evangelization is turning to the Gospels and examining the model that is handed to us um, from Christ in the Scriptures, particularly um, oftentimes when we consider the method that Christ took to evangelization, it's easy to jump towards calling to mind the instances where he had a particular occasion to minister to a mass group of people. We think maybe readily of the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, the Sermon on the Mount, etc. And in these instances, what we, I think, are failing oftentimes to see is the effort that Christ put forth in cultivating intimate relationships with his disciples, not just 12 of them, but particularly of those 12, three, Peter, James, and John, who were his preeminent disciples, you might say. And so these were the men who he brought with him um, to the, the, the experience, the moment of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. These are the men that he brought with him to ascend Mount Tabor to witness the transfiguration. These are the three men that he invited into the Garden of Gethsemane to witness him in the first hours of his passion. And so these men shared an intimacy with Christ that no other man shared with him on earth. And particularly, um, when he did have these occasions of ministering to the masses, these men were with him. These were not just ministerial moments to the individuals in the crowds, but they were also occasions uh, by which he had the opportunity to further the formation of his disciples and model to them. So particularly, um, one thing that I would like to emphasize is that this level of friendship that Christ shared with his disciples um, was something that necessitated unimaginable time together. That for three years, Christ with these men slept, ate, drank, these were the men that perhaps knew what made Christ laugh, what made him cry, what really made him upset. These were guys that maybe saw Jesus do certain private bodily functions that imagining this intimacy with Christ um, is shocking. And so with, um, with this in mind, I just would end this particular point by recognizing that these relationships um, were exactly what was being cultivated in my time with Jake and with Dominic. And ultimately, uh, as I have shared, uh, I am married to my wife, Emily, and in our, in our wedding, two of the groomsmen were Jake and Dominic, and to this day, they are very close friends of mine. Um, and so this principle of authentic friendship then 
transitions into this final pillar of evangelization in the method that we utilize in focus to achieve this end, and that is spiritual multiplication. So spiritual multiplication perhaps sounds um, like intuitive, but the place that I think I'd like to start is turning to, um, to recognize that I think that there is a confusion that has sort of come into, seeped into the minds of many in consideration of evangelization as to what constitutes truly an effective disciple. So in Matthew chapter 28, as I am sure you are familiar, Christ gives his great commission where he says, go therefore, uh, go therefore and baptize, Go therefore and baptize. Go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in all, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so, in this commission and our consideration of discipleship, oftentimes, with respect to the topic of evangelization, I think that oftentimes we become very discouraged because we have this idea in many instances that we must be what oftentimes we will refer to as the super evangelist. Um, And so some people who embody these qualities, uh, which certainly are good qualities when they are imparted by Christ, um, people that embody these qualities, maybe somebody like Pope Pope St. John Paul II, or somebody like Mother Angelica, founders of EWTN, and these marvelous individuals who have these tremendous gifts and they employ those gifts in tremendous ways. And as a result of that, they're capable of reaching countless individuals. But what can be a side effect of this sometimes is that when we consider evangelization, we look to these individuals and then we consider ourselves incapable of rising to that level and therefore are sort of implicitly discouraged in our own undertaking of the effort of evangelization. And so one thing that uh, I think lies at the center or at the root of the approach that in focus we take to evangelization is a verse that is given to us by St. Paul in his second letter to St. Timothy, chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, And what you heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will have the ability to teach others as well. Now, the reason that I share this verse and emphasize to you that it perhaps lies at the root of this proper orientation or proper perspective by which we see the mission of evangelization is because within this verse is this idea, as we sometimes put it simply, the idea of teaching teachers to teach. That to evangelize is not simply a matter of going out and modeling the faith to another individual. It's not even beyond that, going out, modeling our faith so radically that we lead another to the life of conversion. But rather, ultimately, the goal of evangelization is the perpetuation of the church spreading to all of the nations, and that we accomplish this chiefly through the most effective evangelization of living our lives radically on fire for Christ to the point that not only are we able to lead others to the life of conversion, but we're able to do so in such a profound way that they are equipped with the necessary skills and abilities to go out and to do what has been done for them in the life of another. So 
if we consider this idea, um, just to stick with it for another moment, this idea of the super evangelist. So let's say here on my right, we have somebody of the caliber of, let's say, Pope, Pope St. John Paul II, or Mother Angelica, or, or the Protestant, uh, maybe parallel would be people like Billy Graham or Joel Osteen, who have these television or radio programs. And let's say, just for the hypothetical sake of numbers, this person is tremendously gifted, they love Christ, and they have the ability to reach and to convert a million people every year. It's a tremendous gift. But this man over here on my left, let's say we'll call him just average Joe evangelist, he doesn't possess the time, he has a family, he has a job, maybe he doesn't have the same level of and, and quality of skills and capabilities, but he does have the ability to invest in the intimate relationships that God has already, according to his natural circumstances, placed in his life. And so let's say, for number's sake, uh, that he chooses intentionally to invest in just three individuals in his life, very, very intimately and with great fervor, and invites them into his radical life of faith. After one cycle, he's brought three people to conversion. And the super evangelist has brought a million. And initially, as you can see, it looks um, discouraging. However, as you would imagine, this method of evangelization that on my left, this average Joe evangelist, is attempting to accomplish is in its nature multiplicative. And what is beautiful about this approach is that with this idea of super evangelization, Although maybe they are tremendously gifted, at no point throughout this maybe vast web over years and years of evangelization do they have the capacity as an individual to meet all of the individual needs of those perhaps that their influence is bringing to radical conversion and a life with Christ. And so as they undergo this process of evangelization and they themselves are converted, inevitably, there will be things in life that happen. They undergo turmoil and strife. Maybe they undergo things like divorce, loss of loved ones, career, career failure, you name it. And so as life becomes challenging, there will not be that person to, um, to walk with them in the midst of that. And as soon as you cut off the head of the super evangelist from this body, then the entire effort has the risk of falling to shambles. Whereas in this intricate web, if you can imagine, of this just simple, ordinary method of evangelization of one investing in three, deeply and intimately, at any point during the hardships and the difficulties that inevitably those who are interwoven into this web of evangelization, as they experience these difficulties and these tragedies, they will have somebody every step of the way who is radically and intimately invested in their life that they can turn to for support. And at any time, if you were to sever, again, this evangelical initiative from its origin, this first, as we call him, average Joe evangelist, the structure has the ability to be perpetuated independent of his presence. And so this is uh, a very simple approach to evangelization that as I share oftentimes, people are not math equations, um, and we recognize that there are things like sin and free choice in the world uh, that certainly are complicating factors. But nevertheless, the principle when considered, after 22 cycles of just this simple method of one investing in three, 
And by that, I don't mean one investing in three and then going and finding another three, but remaining with the same three indefinitely. This method of one investing in three, as it multiplies after 22 cycles, will have reached mathematically 15.7 billion people, which is, as we're certainly aware, greater than the population of the world. And so, um, finally, on this last point, one thing that I would like to draw to our attention too is the rooting of this, um, this method of evangelization in the tradition and history of the church. So when we look to the early church, I would argue to you that this is actually what we see being played out even so far back as the very scriptures themselves in the epistles. And we have men who, such as St. Paul or perhaps St. John the Apostle, who are invested in by Christ as we shared so deeply and so intimately in this life of friendship that they are willing to go to their death for that friendship. And so we have men like St. Paul who then turns and Certainly, there are cases where as he travels to these various cities, Colossia, Thessalonica, etc., certainly he preaches and encounters innumerable individuals on his evangelical journey, but he chooses in the midst of that to bring with him disciples such as Titus, Timothy, St. Luke, and the likes. And as he invests and cultivates those relationships so deeply, that relationship is what becomes the vehicle of the transition of the faith that he possesses into their lives. Similarly, as I shared, people like St. John the Apostle uh, invest in men, as we know, like St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Polycarp, and Polycarp takes the faith and invests intimately in many people, but again, intimately particularly in saints like St. Irenaeus and so forth. And so we see even in the very early life of the church, this simple approach to evangelization of life lived intimately in friendship with one another playing itself out. And so ultimately, um, this is a method of evangelization that despite its simplicity, has the tremendous ability to reach, as the Great Commission would have it, all nations with the faith. And so as our founder um, of the organization that I work with, Curtis Martin, one thing that he often shares, uh, it is a line that has not left me since I first heard it, is he says, this generation of Catholics is responsible for this generation of people. And so this becomes just a very invigorating point that I think drives the imperative nature of fulfilling this simple but effective approach to evangelization because as I shared, in the simple matter of even just 22 cycles, we have the ability, excuse me, to reach truly the ends of the world and all nations, all individuals with the gospel. And so it was through men like Jake's divine intimacy with the Lord um, and his commitment to authentic friendship and pursuit of that with men such as myself that ultimately culminated in changing my life and equipping me to go on uh, a, a path that I absolutely never before would have anticipated. 
that I would abandon my white collar ambitions in college and of my youth to when I graduate college to go out on full-time mission, raising, fundraising our entire livelihood. Um, certainly, I would have laughed at you if, as I shared, as I entered into the college experience, if you had attempted to predict my future and share this with me. Um, but nevertheless, it was through this simple approach to evangelization that my life was changed and that every day thousands of lives continue to be changed on college campuses all across uh, the United States and outside of the United States as well. So thanks be to the Lord for that. Uh, and thank you for just the opportunity to be here present with you tonight. Thank you again, Stefano, for this opportunity to just share the nature of the work that we are blessed to be a part of uh, in the Apostolate of Focus. So uh, if it's okay, I'd like to just conclude with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God, you are good. We call you our Father. Lord, you are a perfect Father, and we know that your heart is on fire with love in pursuit of every person that you have created in this world, notably ourselves here in this room, and we thank you for this generous love that you have shown to us. Please fan it aflame that we, in love with you, may seek to share this great gift of our faith with those that we encounter each and every day, particularly through the avenues of those relationships which you have planted in our lives. We offer to you this remainder of the evening and our entire lives through the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.